Amen. It's good to see you. I ask you to please take your Bibles or your device and go to Romans chapter 12, verses 1 to 3 is where, we'll, where we will begin this morning, taking a little break from our series through the gospel according to Matthew to give ourselves some bearing, a, a little vision series on what our church is all about. And if you're new to Redeemer, this is the perfect time for you to kind of see and hear what we want to be about here. And if you've been here for a while, it's a good reminder and a good refresher. Of this is what our church wants to be. We want to be a gospel-centered church, one that is a gospel-centered church for North Houston and the nations, that God has placed us here in this time and in this place to serve as a light to our community, to let them know about the fullness of the good news of Jesus Christ. And we want to do that here and in the nations, and we'll talk about that next week. And we're going to do that by making disciples and making much of Jesus Christ by teaching one another how to follow Jesus, by teaching people, hey, this is what Jesus is all about and seeing people get born again. And then us teaching them, here's how we follow Jesus together. And we wanna do that in North Houston and the nations, church planting. And we'll get more into that next week. But last week, we're gonna do it through these three ways. We saw last week with our gospel doctrine. As we looked at, we looked at Romans chapter one through Romans chapter 11. In that little time, you can go listen to it online. All of that survey of our theology shaping us molding us into now what we're going to see today in Romans 12, 13, 14, and 15 is shaping us into a gospel culture. How that theology is just as important to a local church as is our sociology, the way we interact as a society of Christ's people. Because if we have the right beliefs on our website, it is meaningless if we have the wrong behaviors among one another. The vibe of a church must match the doctrine that it ascribes. And that's what we're aiming for here at Redeemer. We want to value theology and our sociology because gospel doctrine leads to a gospel culture. So if you're able, let's stand together for the reading of God's word. We'll begin in Romans 12, verses 1 to 3. And here's what the Holy Spirit tells us through our brother Paul. After all that gospel doctrine, all of that praise and worship in Romans, Romans 11, he says, therefore, since all of that's true, therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Do not be conformed to this age but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. For by the grace given to me, I tell everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he should think. Instead, think sensibly as God has distributed a measure of faith to each one. Let's pray together. King Jesus, help us. As we look at your word, help us to have your mercy in view and that we would be transformed now at the deepest protons and quarks and substrata and atoms of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, that they would be rewired by the Holy Spirit now to walk together as a community of Christ. Help us now, Lord. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Have you ever looked at the back of an HEB receipt? No. You know what's on the back of an H-E-B receipt? Or at least my H-E-B? I don't know what's at your H-E-B, what ghetto H-E-B you might go to. They got coupons back there. 
And there's actually detail, stuff on the back. Sometimes you do a little survey, blah, 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 all that kind of stuff. No one cares about what's on the back or the bottom of an HEB receipt. You only care about the meat. What, it, what, did I, what meat did I actually get? I need to return it. Uh, I need to make sure I didn't get overcharged. You care about that stuff. I thought about that this week when I went grocery shopping, that and oftentimes what happens is, and sometimes Christians, we only think of Romans 1 through 11. We think that is the meat of the book of Romans, and then Romans 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, that's the stuff on the bottom of the receipt. That's the stuff on the back of the receipt. It's good, it matters, but Romans 1 through 11, that's the meat, that's the heavy stuff, that's the good stuff. And beloved, that's not true. If anything... Romans 1 through 11 were written by Paul to help supercharge the culture of the church at Rome, to give them a superstructure and a foundation for how this diverse church, how this new church was not going to go off the rails, how this diverse economically, diverse racially, diverse politically, diverse in age, diverse in all of these different ways, how they would be able to come together and not split, fracture, and harm one another. Romans 1 through 11 was written not to just be a theology textbook for us to study in stale environments, but to actually be the dynamic way that the body of Christ lives together. A gospel culture is the aftershock of gospel doctrine. That's why Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of God because it is the power of God to create a new people in the middle of the Roman empire. And it is the power of God to take a hodgepodge group of people like Redeemer Church and to make them into something that is both salt and light, that is both power and thunder and humility and grace. And you see that all in one word in Romans 12, one. Look at it. Romans 12, one, the first word there, therefore. That word tells us since everything is true and verses Romans 1, one through 11.36, therefore, brothers and sisters, look. Look what he says, in view of the mercies of God, in view of all of the things he talks about for 11 chapters, in view of all those things, he now says, live this way for the next five chapters that I'm gonna detail for you in the book of Romans. See, these are all connected. One massive logical connection from Paul, how gospel doctrine should create a gospel culture. The mercies of God, Redeemer Church, are meant to move us into being a gospel culture. So here's what we see about a gospel-centered church. A gospel-centered church is motivated by the gospel of God. All from verse one. As you have the mercies of God in view, as you survey the wondrous cross on which the crown, the king of glory died, and as you have in view a, a vacated burial site on Easter morning, and as you have in view the Son of God ascending in the clouds back to the Father's right hand where he intercedes for you and pleads for you and fills you with his spirit, as you have all of these things in view now, Paul says, everything changes. That the gospel is relevant to your everyday life in the local church now. And how could the risen Christ not be? How could a man that refused to stay dead by crucifixion not be relevant to your life today? When you go on vacation and they give you an option for a hotel room, you can either have the parking lot view, the interior view, where you can see the atrium, ooh, or you can have an ocean view. Which one are you picking? 
garage view, totally. Give me the parking lot view. I love to see the parking lot. That's what I came to Hawaii for. I want to see parking lots. No, you want the ocean view. Because you know that we love to see things that stir us, that move us, that motivate us. Just last night, we're driving home from my parents' house and the moon last night was incredible. We were all talking, going, man, look at the moon. I couldn't see it, it was the where I was in the car and it was blocked by some trees in our neighborhood. And Natalie's like, you gotta see this moon. I'm like, I've seen it before. She's like, not this moon. I'm like, we don't have different moons. I've seen that moon. And then I turned the corner and I could see the moon and I just, we parked and just stared at it for about 30 seconds. Because there is something about when we see something bigger than us, majestic, it moves us and changes us. And that's why Paul says, when you see, when you have in view, verse one, the mercies of God, you will change. When you go from just coming to church and you see the mercies of God, you will change. When you go from just reading the Bible to actually seeing the mercies of God for you and the cross and resurrection of Christ, you will change. When you have in view the mercies of God, because your life will be filled with difficulty. You're gonna have conflict with other Christians. You're going to have challenging relationships. People are gonna be jerks. You never will be, but people will be. You'll have frustrations. And Paul's reminding you, beloved, you have a mercies of God view room. Open the curtains. Let the light in. So do you see? Do you have God's mercy in view this morning? Of Jesus dying in your place for your sins, granting forgiveness to whoever will come to him, him filling you with the spirit, him praying to the Father for you right now, the Holy Spirit groaning on your behalf. When you groan with words that are just too deep, you have too deep, the Spirit says, I'll pray for you. I'll help you in your weaknesses. See, God's mercy, beloved, is for everyday life right now. And since that's true, look at what Paul says in verse one. So I urge you, in view of all that gospel, gospel doctrine that we know, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Here's what Paul means by that. A gospel-centered church lives what they believe. A gospel-centered church lives what they believe. Now, this is a really unusual verse. This might be one of the most um, cliched Christian verses that we just say it, and yet we have no idea what we're talking about. Or have ever even like stopped to think about it? A living sacrifice, what in the world is that? That sounds unusual, doesn't it? Well, it should sound unusual. It's meant to. A crucified champion makes no sense to our senses, does it? And neither does a sacrifice that lives. Sacrifices die. Sacrifices have the blood let out of them on behalf of others. So what is Paul calling for when he says, I want you to be a living sacrifice? What Paul is calling for here is now our lives being sacrificed and lived for others. A living sacrifice is living for other people. Beloved, the sacrifice is in the living and the everyday opportunities to love your neighbor as yourself. To not think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. 
And all the ways he details in Romans 12, look at Romans 12, 9 through 15. Look at all these things. This is what he means by a living sacrifice, loving without hypocrisy, detesting evil, clinging to what is good, loving one another deeply as brothers and sisters, outdoing one another and showing honor. Do not on and on, sharing with the saints, rejoicing with those who rejoice, weeping with those who weep. This is how sacrifices live. To live in all the ways this book details. The sacrifice is in the living. But notice though, don't miss this. I didn't, I, didn't miss, I didn't notice this until this week. And I've read Romans who knows how many times. You've probably read Romans 12 who knows how many times, but I never noticed it until this week. Did you see the plural singular disharmony here? Look at Romans 12, 2 again. I'm sorry, Romans 12, 1. I urge you to present your bodies, plural, as a living sacrifice, singular, if this got turned in in an English class in high school, what would happen? There is a disagreement in the plural singular harmonization here. Uh, you need to correct your... But Paul knows what he's doing. See, it's plural. Your bodies. A living sacrifice. So what is Paul doing here? He didn't make a mistake. What does he mean? It takes all of us to be a living sacrifice. You cannot live this verse by yourself. This verse is not meant to be a personal reflection. What can I do with my life to be a living sacrifice? It's rooted in the church community and all of us sacrificing together, that's how we become a living sacrifice. It's not just what you do. It doesn't matter what you do independently. It matters what we do together. Paul wants every Christian, every body in the Roman church and in the church at Redeemer in Tomball, Texas. He wants us to collectively look at God's mercy and become a living sacrifice for one another to the glory of God. It's even more obvious in Greek. It's awesome. You can see this if you go to yallversion.com. You Google that, yallversion. It takes every you or your, even though it's singular to us in English, it's plural in Greek. And it will translate it with y'alls in there. And that's how it should be read. You can read it like this. Present y'all's bodies. This is y'all's true worship. And it can even change the setting. I'm a Northeasterner. I'm not a Southern. It'll say, use guys' worship. By the renewing of y'all's mind. Paul's Texan. That y'all may discern what is good. Amen. The problem is that Christians, we can read this passage and we over-personalize it. When Romans 12 is about Paul giving instructions to an entire church community how to treat one another, he wants this diverse, multiracial church to be unified. He wants the slaves, Roman slaves, and those that are free to be unified, to sacrifice for one another. He wants those who are Romans by birth and those who bought their Roman citizenship to sacrifice for one another. He wants the, the women and the wealthy, successful, rich men, he wants them to sacrifice for the women. He wants the former cult prostitutes to be served by the successful textiles salesmen because this is what happens in a gospel culture. Together, humble, united serving one another, the whole church, we become a living sacrifice. Not just one of us, 
all of us together. That's true worship. This is your true worship, he says. It's not our singing. It's not just an hour and a half on Sunday. It's not 45 minutes of agreeing to songs and agreeing to good theology, but it is a good sociology. A gospel culture blossoms when a church values its ecology as much as its theology, its environment. Because we all know, we, maybe you've been a part of churches where they have great doctrine on their website, they have great books for sale in their bookstore, but they're jerks to one another. That is what Paul says in Romans 12.9 is hypocrisy. That's why he says in 12.9, let love be without hypocrisy. It's possible for us to love in word, but what? Not have the works to back it up. And this is where for us to really manifest this as a gospel-centered church, we must be a counterculture. We must be a counterculture in two ways, in this present age, in this world, and we gotta be a counterculture in the Bible Belt. Because there's a lot of hypocritical churches out there and we will become that if we do not do what Romans 12, 2 says. 12, 2, look. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Guys, Roman culture was so oppressive and violent and pagan, idolatrous, patriotic, materialistic, hedonistic, erotic, and cruel. You know what other cultures just like that? American culture. Our culture is violent. It is oppressive. It is pagan. It is idolatrous. It is patriotic. It is materialistic. It is hedonistic. It is erotic and cruel. And Paul knows to this young Roman church, watch out because you were called to live counterculturally. And if you're not careful, you will be conformed to the church. You'll be conformed to the age, to the world, and you'll look just like it. And that's true of us out here in the suburbs. We can become just like this age if we aren't careful. We can slip right into the ways of the world and, it, and go undetected. Like I know, I know every time my wife, Natalie, every time she's talked to her mother on the phone and I talk to her later, because even though she's lived here for over 10 years now, as soon as she talks to her mother and I talk to her, all of that Louisiana draw and weird accent from Lake Charles comes right back. I'm like, what are you saying? Those aren't even words. Because you just, it, what you are around, that's what happens. And so Paul knows, beloved, if you aren't careful, if you don't keep God's mercy in view, you'll be conformed to what is around you. Unless you keep the cross at the center, unless you keep the risen Christ at the center, unless you keep the word of God, that gospel doctrine at the center, you will be like someone who's playing in the ocean and just by having a good time and enjoying it, you feel the slow-mo drag and pull of the ocean and of this age. But unless you keep your, the view of your cooler, the view of your towel, the view of that umbrella, and then you come back, you're drift. That's what Paul says, keep God's mercy in view, or you'll be conformed. Regularly preach the gospel to yourself. Regularly rehearse God's mercies, or you'll be conformed to this age when, when in reality, a gospel-centered church is a fixer-upper. We are a fixer-upper. It's not trademarked. I, I looked. A gospel-centered church is a fixer-upper. Look at the second half of verse two. So don't be conformed, but what? Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The battleground is in your heart and mind. 
you can show up to church week after week. You can show up to Bible studies, show up to classes. You can read your Bible and all that kind of good stuff. But if it doesn't happen on the battleground of your mind, what you think. See, theology is meant to transform you. It's what God uses. God uses truth to transform you. As Dr. Kevin Van Hooser says, the true end of theology is not a systematic textbook, but grown up children of God. That's what Paul's after for you for all of us, that we would be grown up children of God. Not just an orthodox compendium of doctrine, but an orthodox community. An orthodox community of disciples who what? Who embody the mind of Jesus Christ everywhere to everyone at all times. This is what Paul's after and this is what we're after. An orthodox community that embodies the mind of Christ to everyone, everywhere at all times. And it happens in your mind. Bottom line. What I love about this verse, it's teaching us God is renovating us. You may be frustrated where you are in your life, in your walk with Christ. Okay, that's fine. But God's renovating you. You are being transformed. Do you want to grow? It takes time. Beloved, how does God make frogs? Does he just glue legs onto tadpoles? No. But we think, oh, I started coming to church more regularly. How come my life hasn't changed? You can't just glue church attendance onto your life. You can't just glue reading John Piper onto your life. You can't just glue, I I listen to some podcasts throughout the week. How come I'm not changing? It takes transformation. It takes time. And God is transforming us, renovating us down at the deepest levels of who we are, rewiring our minds. We used to think one way and God's teaching us through his word. No, that's not how you should think. Let's, Let's change those connections. Oh, I used to process it this way. That's not how we're going to process it now. He's renovating us, transforming us at the deepest levels of who we are. And when we behold the gospel, when we see the goodness and mercy and loving kindness of God, our Savior, Jesus Christ, then we're transformed. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, that we all with unveiled faces are looking as in a mirror at what? The glory of the Lord, that gospel doctrine, the, in view of God's mercies, what happens? We are being transformed. Same word. Same, same word as in Romans 12. We're being transformed into that same image, the glory of Christ. That's what God's turning you into. You are not just some ho-hum, vanilla, ordinary, plain Jane believer. You are being transformed into the character an image of Jesus Christ. And this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. He is going to do it. So what you see, what you keep in view, changes you, transforms you, and turns you into something totally different. And in a gospel culture, you know what's gonna happen? If we do this well, a gospel culture means that we're gonna fight against big dealness and petty wars. Look at verse three real quick. I just wanna point out this verse to you. Romans 12, three. But by the grace of God given to me, Paul says, look, I tell every one of you not to think of himself more highly than he should think. Some of us, we hurt our necks because our heads are so big. This would have been true in the Roman church. Of course, in the Roman mindset, of course, the successful textiles importer, exporter should think he's more valuable and more highly than the former cult prostitute the former sex temple worker. And there they are in a local church together. It would be normal for a Roman mind for the guy to think, of course, I'm, I should think of myself better than this former cult prostitute. But the gospel says, wrong answer. 
you are one in Christ. Do not think of yourself more highly. Just because, so we have our own temptations, don't we? Well, the kind of car we drive, the neighborhood we live in, the house we have, the job we have, how good our kids are, how athletic our children are, the clothes we wear, how high up we are in the org chart. On and on we could go with how we could be tempted to think of ourselves more highly. And Paul says, crucify all that. Don't think of yourself more highly than you should think. Be sensible. Paul says, grab a clue. We're one in Christ. And this is why now that a gospel-centered church, we fight against hypocrisy. Look at verse nine. Let love be without what? Hypocrisy. Isn't this one of the most common charged things against Christians? They're a bunch of hypocrites. And Paul says, it needs not be that way. And here's how. If the right doctrine leads to the wrong culture, that will be hypocrisy. But if we have no fakeness, no phoniness, we're real with one another, real before the living Christ, without hypocrisy, this is what we'll look like. We'll look like Romans 12, 9 through 21, really. And I summarize it here on the screen. If you want to maintain a gospel culture, it's the things on the left. If you want to derail a gospel culture, it's the things on the right of the, of the slash. Listen, as, as I read him, look what Paul says. Detest evil, cling to what is good, verse nine. If you want to foster a gospel culture, we call sin, sin, and we detest it. If you want to derail a gospel culture, overlook evil. Don't speak against it. A gospel culture says, yeah, white supremacy, that's wrong. White nationalism, that's evil. A gospel culture says sins are sins. So we can also say grace can be grace. If we refuse to call sin, sin, then we can no longer call grace, grace. A gospel culture also, verse 10, loves one another deeply as brothers and sisters. It's family style. It's not individualistic. So here's what can't happen in a gospel culture is you can't be someone that sits in the back of a local church or sits in a small group, crosses your arms, refuses eye contact, refuses to look at people, and then complain, that's not a friendly place. And you also, in the same side, we can't be the kind of church that sees someone all by themselves and then still be consumed with our own friendships. A gospel culture moves out beyond itself. A gospel culture, verse 11, verse 10, outdoes one another in showing honor. This would be huge in Roman culture. That slaves should be honored? Paul says, yes. That the former cult prostitute should be honored? Yes. Everyone deserves honor. Honor the poor, honor the women, honor the slaves, honor them all. You want to derail a church? Dishonor one another through gossip, through slander. Do you know that I have never heard of a local church being destroyed by someone's adultery? I have never heard of a local church being destroyed by someone's drug and alcohol addictions. But I have heard of local churches that have been destroyed by gossip, that have been destroyed by pettiness, that have been destroyed by slander. See, honor keeps a gospel culture. Zeal for Christ. If you want to destroy a church, just be meh for Jesus. Fine, I'll go to church. Fine, I'll give. I got five bucks in my pocket. That's not what Paul's after. He wants lives that are zealous, excited for the living Christ, that are excited to serve, not grumble, that rejoice together, not always woe is me, that are patient in suffering, don't give up. Churches that they are persistent in prayer for one another, not occasional. 
Places that share with the saints and that aren't stingy. Places that bless those who persecute them, that pray for their enemies, not curse them. Places that sympathize and that rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep, not those who ignore. Not those who, who don't send the text, how are you doing? Not those who don't follow up, hey, I've been praying for you, how are you? Places that harmonize with one another, that aren't disagreeable. You know some of the most miserable people on the planet are disagreeable Christians, are prickly Christians. May that never be at Redeemer Church. Places that are friendly, not clicky. Places that are careful. I love what Paul says in verse uh, 17. Look at what he says. Give careful thought to do what is honorable in everyone's eyes. He says, I want you to think. Well, I just react. Paul says, don't do that. I'm just a straight shooter. I say what I say. He says, guess what? You miss. You're a straight shooter. You go fast, but you're not a good shot. We should be careful, not reactful. Be peaceful, not vengeful. All of this Paul lays out for us. This is what living sacrifices look like. This is what it means to be a living sacrifice. All of these things, and it's summarized in chapter 13 when he says, don't know anyone anything except to love one another. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law, the commandments, all of the Ten Commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet. And any other commandment are summed up by this one. Paul says, I can summarize all 613 commands in the law for you. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. You know why the Roman church needed this? Because they were gonna be tempted to divide. They were so diverse, Jew, Gentile. They got people who used to worship Caesar, people who grew up worshiping Yahweh, people that grew up worshiping in Greco-Roman temples and sacrifices, those who grew up in synagogues. And they're hard, it's hard to come together. But Paul says, you need this word because Christians, we aren't always easy to get along with. We're humans, we're sinners, we're annoying. Christians are annoying. You know why Christians are annoying sometimes? Because they're humans, I'm annoying. You're annoying. We're opinionated. You are. I'm not. You're inconsiderate. I'm not. We think the world revolves around us. We have all of these issues. So Paul says, hey, there's a way for us to come together. And it's not for people to become more like the pastors in Rome are to people become more like the pastors at Redeemer Tomball, but for people to find harmony in Jesus Christ. Listen, we're gonna have legit disagreements. Every real Christian community will have legit disagreements over non-essential issues, things that don't pertain to being saved. And Paul says this, a gospel-centered church accepts one another, plain and simple. A gospel-centered church accepts one another. Look at verse one of chapter 14. Look at what Paul says. Accept anyone who is weak in faith. Accept anyone who's weak in faith and don't argue about disputed matters. You see how, I I love that verse. Don't argue, don't debate about debatable things. You you see how like, huh. There are things that are disputed, that are debatable. Paul says, but don't debate them. Just let it go. There are times for that. And here's what's happening here in the Roman church. This happens in Rome. This happens in the letters to the Corinthians. This happens in Galatians. This happens in Colossians. This happens a lot in the New Testament. Here's how it happens. Imagine four people. And on this side, you have two Jewish people. And on this side, you have two non-Jew. They're Gentile Christians. They're all Christians now. What's happening is there are some Jews, one of these Jews on this side, 
says, I have a real problem eating the pork that was offered to one of the idols and that was brought to our community group. I can't eat that for two reasons. One, I view it as unclean because it's pig, it's pork. It was been in the most common meats in Rome. It's dirt cheap. And secondly, I have a hard time eating that because it was offered to a temple. It's too linked for idolatry to me. I can't eat it. That's their thing. But then you have a non-Jew over here saying, have you ever had pork belly? It's amazing. And we got it on the cheap. I brought it. That's offensive. Let's eat. And the Bible says they can eat it. And then on the other side, you have, the, uh, you have a Jew sitting across, another Jew sitting across the room going, I have no problem eating that. I heard from Peter that all foods are now clean. And I heard that Jesus said all foods are clean. I'm eating that pork. Let's dive in. But then you've got another non-Jew over here sitting next to another non-Jew and he goes, I can't eat that either. I used to worship at that temple. I used to be a pagan. I used to worship that idol. And that food, I know that butcher. I know how he cuts it. He does a good job. I can't eat that. I'm gonna be too tempted to get back into idolatry. This is the problem in the church. Who's right? Who's wrong? Who should eat it? Who shouldn't? And now the community can fracture around these things and rip each other apart. And Paul says what? Accept one another. Don't try to change each other. Accept anyone who is weak in the faith. So who are the weak? The weak are the ones who are saying, I can't eat that. It just... It reminds me of idolatry. I view it as unclean. I can't eat it. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew who says that or if you're a former pagan worshiper of that deity. I, I can't eat that either. Paul says they're weak in that matter. And that's, that's fine because to them it would be sin. The strong are the ones who say, I can eat it and I'm a Jew. I have no problem eating that pork. Or a Gentile who says, I have no problem eating it either. It doesn't affect me. It doesn't tempt me towards idolatry. I can dive right in. So there is the strong and there is the weak. And look at what Paul says. Accept anyone who is weak in the faith, but don't argue about disputed matters. One person believes he may eat anything. I can eat the pork, no problem. Another believes I can only eat vegetables. One who eats must not look down on the one who does not eat. The one who does not eat must not judge the one who does because why? Because God has accepted him. So, so do you see what the problem is? The issue is the weak ones, the ones who are saying, I can't eat that, seeing the strong eat and thinking, if they cared about holiness, they wouldn't be eating that. If they cared about Jesus, they wouldn't be eating. Obviously, we're the ones that care. They wouldn't eat that pork. They wouldn't drink that wine. They wouldn't drink that lager. They wouldn't work on Saturday. They would be taking a Sabbath. They wouldn't public school their kids. We could go on and on and on and on down the list. The weak are judging the strong. And Paul says, no, 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 don't do that. And then the other temptation is the strong here on this issue, judging the weak. You guys need to grow up. You guys are lazy. Just go work on the Sabbath. And on and on and on and judging them. And Paul says, that's not how the church is supposed to run. Instead, what we should do is verses three and four is not judge one another, but also verses 13 and 15. We should realize this from Romans 14. Let us no longer judge one another. Instead, decide never to put a stumbling block or a pitfall on the way of your brother or sister. So if, if you're eating lunch with somebody and you're a Roman Christian and they told you, you know, this really tempts me uh, towards idolatry with that cut of pork riblets you have. I just, man, I, I can't. You shouldn't go, hmm, sorry about that. You say, you know what, let's go somewhere else. I don't need to eat this. Let's go. 
Same way as if you're sitting with someone who has a, a problem with alcohol. Not just that they're, they don't like it and they think Christians shouldn't drink. That's not what Paul's talking about. Paul's talking about people who have an addiction. They, they could stumble into sin. And so if you're out to eat with them, you should be like, you know what? Though I have freedom to get a glass of wine or a beer, I'm not going to because of who I'm with. I'm not going to cause them to stumble and fall. But look at verse 14. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. The pork is fine. The wine is fine. The Sabbath day is fine. These things are not wrong. But look at what he says. Still, to someone who considers a thing to be unclean, to that one it's unclean. To them it's unclean. That's it. If that, if that Jewish believer is offended by the pork, to them, I, I can't eat it, it's my conscience, I'm sorry, they're okay. If the Gentile believer says, you know, I have no problem with the pork, it's okay. You know, for us, if, if a Christian today were to say, you know, it's just my conviction that homeschooling is the only way to, for us to go, we gotta do it, that's good for them. But it becomes a problem when they start to judge other Christians going, you should be doing it too. Or if a Gentile or if a Christian today in our church would be like, you know what? I have no problem drinking alcohol. It doesn't bother me. And you should be doing it too. I can't believe you're being so legalistic. You should be drinking. No, that's a problem. Look at what Paul says. For if your brother, verse 15, if your brother or sister is hurt by what you eat, hurt by what you drink, hurt by how you educate, hurt by how you vote, all of these things, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy by what you eat, by what you drink, by what you teach, by what you watch, by what you do, someone for whom Christ died. So beloved, here's the reality. You're gonna be strong in some areas where your brothers and sisters in Christ are weak. And then there will be areas in your life where you are weak. And you have brothers and sisters in Christ and they're strong. And we accept one another. We don't try to change each other. I love the way Eugene Peterson in the message translates this passage. You should, you should go and read it. It's really, who are you to try to change one another? Your burden is love. Don't force things on. He just does a really good job at helping get it into today's understanding. But for me personally, I said, I'm, in, these, in Paul's language, strong and weak. I'm strong when it comes to alcohol. I, I'm not tempted towards drunkenness and it doesn't bother my conscience. But I have friends that it does. And there are people in this church that I know, they're weak here. They would be tempted towards drunkenness. And so I would bear with them and not flaunt my freedom. And that's gonna be true in your life too. And then there are areas in my life where I'm weak and my friends are strong. My conscience is sensitive. Some shows I can't watch, shows that some of my Christian friends watch. I'm weak in this area. It, it, I'm, I can't, it, affects, it affects my conscience. And then there are other shows that I watch that I told a Christian friend, oh, you should watch this show, it's so, so great. And they said, I tried to watch it, I couldn't, it just affected me. And so I didn't tell them, you need to grow up and watch it. I said, okay, I, told, I get it, I totally get it. Conversation done. Whether it's food or drink, schooling choices, and we can go on on age of the earth. Some people believe, some Christians believe the earth is only... 6,000, 10,000 years old. Some Christians believe the earth is millions of years old. Okay, we accept one another. That's a non-salvation binding thing. Whether it's age of the earth, baptism methods, end times, is there a rapture, is there not? Is there an actual thousand year millennial kingdom, is there not? Bible translations, on and on. All of these non-essential issues. Paul says the MO of a gospel culture is 14.9. So then let us pursue what promotes peace and what builds up one another. If it doesn't build up a brother or sister, you let it go. 
If it doesn't promote peace, you let it go. Romans 15 says, we accept one another just as Christ also accepted you. Gospel doctrine creating a gospel culture to the glory of God. We accept one another because of the gospel. Jesus accepted us grimy sinners into his kingdom, into his love. That's how you became a Christian. And do you notice that? As he accepts us, as Christ accepts you. See, sometimes in American Christianity, we talk about you need to accept Jesus into your life. Well, look at the other way it goes. It's actually Christ accepting you. Christ accepting you. And he is willing to accept any broken down sinner that comes to him. You ask and he will accept. You walk up to the door, he will open it. And that informs how we accept one another. Another Christian should never wonder if another Christian will accept them. If you are in Christ, we accept you. Doesn't matter how much you make. Doesn't matter where you live. Doesn't matter how you vote. Doesn't matter what you do for work. Doesn't matter how you educate. Doesn't matter how you view alcohol. Doesn't matter how you view baptism. At Redeemer Church, if you have been accepted by Christ, we accept you. And you have a home. If we're standoffish to other Christians, it's not because our standards are too high. It's because our mercy is too low. So next time a brother or sister annoys you, next time another Christian irritates you around something that isn't sin, keep God's mercy in view. Love without hypocrisy and accept them because Christ already has. See, this matters. And this isn't the junk at the bottom of a receipt. This is what it looks like to live a gospel-centered life. Let's pray together. King Jesus, help us now to truly accept one another as you have already accepted us. And so we need to keep your, your mercy in view. We will flounder and we will fail if we do not keep your mercy in our minds. We will struggle, we will not accept one another, we will be petty, we will bicker, we will fight if we do not keep your mercy in view. We will try to change one another into our own images instead of Christ if we do not keep your mercy in view. So help us, King Jesus, in view of your mercies, to present our bodies as a collective living sacrifice, Redeemer Church, offered up to you, King Jesus living for your glory, living for your name and for North Houston and the nations. So help us now. It's in your mighty name we pray, Lord. Amen.